Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, Royfield here. Before we start, we have a new advertiser. Now, before some of you go, ugh, and fast forward a couple of minutes, um, please lend me your ears because this is important because it helps to keep the lights on around here and pay some bills. And this advertiser is also very different. Knowledge of the classics is back in style. You know, it's people like those philosopher authors, people like Homer and Cicero and Spinola, and some of the moderns like Nietzsche as well. Online Great Books is designed to help you to develop a regular habit of reading the great works of Western culture. With weekly reading goals, reading reminders, accountability tools and a dedicated community of fellow readers, they can help you keep on track and schedule with your reading. OnlineGreatBooks.com has a reading goal system that is designed to help you to progress through reading and the comprehension of the great books with just three one-hour reading sessions each week. Every month, they select for you an edition of one of the great books, and they will send it directly to your home. They begin with Homer, and then progress through the works of Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, and then on to the moderns. They even do Shakespeare. So, if you're interested in developing a lifelong habit of reading and studying the classics of Western culture, go to onlinegreatbooks.com forward slash ROI, Enter the promo code ROI to get your 25% off your first three months of learning. Enjoy. It was the best of times. It was the worst. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Away, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And the king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Things That Made England. The idea of this show is to decide on what things that make England the way that she is. The country that, despite all, we feel lucky to be part of even if, like me, maybe you live in San Francisco. Every week, one of us, that's David and I, will pitch an idea to the other 
to be designated as one of the things that makes England distinctive. No one is supposing, by the way, that all or indeed any of these things are specific only to England, because that would be somewhat of a tall order. Simply that they are an important aspect of why England is the way that she is. Then every month we'll come back to you, the listeners, or maybe just the listener to vote and to see whether each idea is deemed worthy to be described as thing that's made England or not. So I am Roy Field Brown, uh, the producer of 10 American Presidents, How Jamaica Conquered the World, Dumpty Dum, Mid-Atlantic and Friday 15. And with me, I have my co-host who is... David Crowther, who does the History of England podcast. What about the Anglo-Saxon History of England? Oh, uh, reincorporated that, Roy Field. You're out of date, mate. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Right. Oh, yes. I, I need to keep up. I need to keep you do. up. You do. Right. Now, this week, I propose, David, that yeah. we put Dunkirk in okay. the cabinet. Right. Okay. How do you feel about that? Why would we do that, Royfield? I'm looking forward to finding out why we would do that from you. A curtain of darkness hangs over the coast of Britain. The dark shadow of ships flash their signals to the shore. As dawn breaks, Pathy Gazette's cameraman is on a tiny merchant ship. He is risking his life to bring you the pictures. He is on his way to Dunkirk. Every few seconds he sees other ships returning, ships of all shapes and sizes, manned by sailors and merchantmen of wireless operators are at their posts. Each ship is filled with the men of the BEF and of the French army in Flanders. They are on their way home, home from the hell that is Dunkirk. Since these pictures were taken, we have all heard the full story from the Prime Minister of how the Royal Navy, using nearly a thousand ships, has brought back nearly 350,000 men. Now you are off burning Dunkirk. Now you are to see that evacuation in progress. You will see the Navy in action, Nazi planes overhead. You will see the beaches of Dunkirk under enemy fire, our own guns replying. When Napoleon laid Boulogne for a year with his flat bottom boats and his grand army, he was told by someone, there are bitter weeds in England. There are certainly a great many more of them since the British Expeditionary Force returned. Sir, I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made, as they are being made, we shall prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary for years, if necessary alone. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender, and if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it was subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. I think because it marks the change of how the English perceive themselves, and that change is still with us today. It really marks the start 
of England in the late 20th century. If you look at the way that we went to war in 1914, right. it's jingoistic and it's empire. It's, it's all about empire and how big and how powerful we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, 20 odd years later, we are a small country rolling back the Nazi hordes. We are plucky little Englanders. And that's where we get the really, that's really mm. where we see the late 20th century manifestation of the expression little Englanders. Also, it gives us a, na- a modern national myth is point number three. Right. Those thousand little boats going over there. Again, we're plucky. And it's given us a term which has gone into the British, but I would say really the English lexicon, which is the Dunkirk spirit. So those are four indelible reasons why Dunkirk needs to go in the cabinet. Okay, that's very quick. I was expecting a full exposition of Dunkirk, what it is and where we got from. Oh, no, 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 no. no. Lord, straight on to the point. So I just say yes, no, and then we're off, yeah? So Little Englander, do you know where the expression comes from? I know it does predate Dunkirk. Does it? Actually, I have absolutely no idea. I asked that question purely in the spirit of inquiry rather than the spirit of trying to trip you up, which is, of course, what I would normally be doing. Well, hmm. Shakespeare actually did use the expression. Yeah. Did he use it in the context of Brexit or was he just, you know, part of the... I thought you told me off mic, (laughs) don't mention Brexit. Uh, Uh, But really... The expression really comes into its own in the 19th century. And it was the Liberal Party who were opposed to the expansion of the British Empire. So the Tories wanted to go out there, trade with everybody, then clobber them over the head and colonise them. Mm -hmm. And it was the Liberal Party who were opposed to the expansion of the the British Empire. And the Tories called them Little Englanders because they didn't want to expand any further from the United States. I think the expression kind of comes into its own after the Battle of Dunkirk, which was a military operation, David, which took place in Dunkirk, northern France, kind of at the start of the Second World War. And as I said, I really think it's come to define England in the 20th century. Because you don't say little Scotlanders or little 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 Welsh people. It's, it's, you do not. You know, isn't, it, it, isn't that interesting how um, uh, Scotland, I suppose it's oppressor and oppressed, isn't it? How um, mm. Scotland gets away with uh, going for independence and... Um, Although the Catalonians, of course, do get accused of being, um, you know, wanting to be on their own. Little Catalonians. Catalonians. I don't think anybody's used the phrase. But it's interesting how the way that uh, people report things. Okay, I mean, I take Mm. the point. It's very interesting, actually, that uh, I think my mother still was, as a child, was taught a song which included, you know, what does the empire mean to you? Um, The whole It was all about how important the empire was and how great the empire was. And that's that's Mm. 1940s. So, you know, in her psyche is still, you know, that that concept of empire being a good thing and being uh, being a powerful thing. Uh, But you're right, around that stage, we do begin to character ourselves, do we not, as England standing alone against the world or Britain standing alone against the world? Absolutely. And, you know, we have good reason. You know, there's that whole maxim that uh, the Britain gave the world time in the Second World War, the Americans gave gave it money and the Russians gave its lives. But we really did in that weird time of 1940 to 1941, when it was Britain against uh, the Axis powers, Germany, then Italy comes in like a month after Dunkirk. We we really were up against it. And the strains of that um, politically and emotionally and culturally have never left England. 
So we have the Germans um, invading the Low Countries in May 1940. Uh, they, they, and, and the French commander, Allied Supreme Commander Gamelin, initiates Plan D, which is basically to get the British Expeditionary Force and uh, some German troops and some French troops basically up to meet the Germans, you know, who are crashing through uh, the, the Netherlands and uh, Belgium. However, the sneaky Germans on the 14th of May burst through the Ardennes just to the south of those troops, which is this heavily forested area of Belgium, and race through to the Channel, thereby cutting off uh, the Allied troops to the north from the the bulk of the French army to the south. And for a period of 10 days, um, there are some 340,000 men who are trapped in this slowly decreasing pocket uh, between the German army and the coast at Dunkirk. The ramifications of that are somewhat massive for Churchill, who's the new prime minister at the time. There are major ructions within his war cabinet. And Lord Halifax, the foreign secretary, basically says, the gig's up. We need to uh, look at surrender terms, or at least peace terms, with, with the Germans. And out of that, out of Churchill saying no and telling the Navy, get these troops back, we send over just under a 1,000 ships of all shapes and sizes to go to the coast of France and to rescue those British, Belgian, Dutch and French troops. So some 861 vessels actually go. In the popular mind's eye, these are all little fishing boats. They weren't. There were some large cruisers and whatever, and some 200 and odd actually were sunk in the operation. But we do get 340,000 men back. And what that does for us, it gives wind in Churchill's sails to say we can continue to fight on, even though we left the majority of our heavy equipment in France. Basically, the British Army has no tanks, no heavy artillery. We've left it all in France, but we still have a navy and an air force. But then we get the stirring, we'll fight them on the beaches. But hmm. psychologically, what happens is we are small and plucky. And that's never left us until this day. As I say, you look at the jingoistic press of the 19th century. Uh, it's John Bull with a lion. You know, we'll be striding the globe. Definitely in 1914, that is still there. May 1940, we're plucky and small. It can't, um, it can't be of that one moment, can it? You know, a, a national psyche doesn't change um, overnight from one massive defeat or victory, however you want to put it. You know, there must have been a process going on that led to Dunkirk mentally, if if not militarily. There's a massive shock from the end of the First World War to the start of the Second World War in 1939. When Chamberlain says, and now we are at war with Germany, it wasn't like 1914 with people singing and dancing in the streets. So the horrors of the First World War are still fresh in everyone's minds. And this is something which we have to do. It's a slightly different thing, and, though, isn't it? It's, I mean, what, cause, yeah, I agree. No, but what I'm saying is I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to understand. Yeah. And in a way, I kind of agree with you. We didn't just flick a switch. Yeah. 1914, yay, it's war. 
1939, it's like, oh, crumbs. Mm. And this is really less about the actual mechanics, at least in my mind, of actually what the Germans did or didn't do in terms of when, why did they stop? Why didn't they just keep yes, going right. and, and really like right. batter the, the Allied troops? But they did stop, which gave us that week or so then to go and get the troops back. But it's how we spun it. In no other bit of English history that I can think of have we ever spun a defeat as a victory. Classically, classically, um, you would look at Balkan nations for that. So the Serbs would talk about the field of golden cloth and we lost that battle against the Turks. And we're still talking about it mm-hmm. 600 years later. It's, you know, it's a point of national... There are right. the Americans uh, and the 1812 war, Royfield. You know, clearly, well, clearly, give us, that analogy, David. Give, give us that analogy. Well, the 1812 war, the Americans stated as their one of their war objectives that they were going to take British North America, i.e., Canada. And at the end of the war, they'd done nothing of the sort. And in fact, I think we'd also burnt the White House, uh, although we had, it's true to say, lost a few battles along the way as well. At the end, they did not, you know, Canada remained, uh, remained uh, independent. And yet, you know, the Americans and most of the American population, I think, I don't know, hopefully they will tell us, would think of the 1812 war as a victory. Well, I think the 1812-1814 war is a funny one in the American psyche, because I think most, the average American doesn't even know it exists. Your average Canadian absolutely does know, because in effect, it's the founding of Canada as being truly separate from America, not imperiled by it. So, so for Canadians, it's big for all the reasons that you've just said, because the, the, the aim of the Americans was, let's just go take this. And they don't. But what does come out of the 1812, 1814 conflict is, of course, the Star Spangled Banner. That's what it's all about. The battle of, is it Baltimore, where the British yes, are shelling Baltimore. He's in yes. that cell, isn't he? And he can see the Star Spangled Banner right. still there that's in the where morning. It comes from, yeah. So, and then of course it gives us it gives us Jackson. Yes, it gives us Jackson, New Orleans, and all that. Yep. Anyway, that, that's just another example of. Um, I'm sure that must have happened before. And it's a very nice approach, isn't it? Declaring uh, declaring victory, and people say, "Oh, sorry, I thought that was a defeat." But fine, sure, it must be all right. People will go with you. And Dunkirk. I mean, obviously, I guess that's talked about a lot, isn't it? Uh, in terms of a propaganda victory. Dunkirk's a super, superb example. I mean, I get the point also that Dunkirk has a lot of significance mentally for the British in the war of, uh, you know, the British saying, OK, right, uh, we are going to fight on now. Of course, within the war as a whole, you might make the point Dunkirk's pretty irrelevant. Stalingrad is, is where it's at um, in terms of really turning the tide of the war. How relevant is, without wanting to be too controversial and without wanting to denigrate the amazing achievement that Dunkirk was, how relevant is it really in the uh, in the whole of the Second World War? You're kind of missing Sorry about that, that point. Right. To hell with it, to what it means right. in a, to True. the Second World War, is what it means to us yeah. as, as English people. So we think it's a right. negative thing, do we? We think that um, England is no, turned no, away no, from I'm internationalism not, here. I'm neither ascribing negative all positive connotations to it, but it's a thing. We have an expression, the Dunkirk spirit. And I would say, though it might be not as important for younger English people, but for definitely for English people who are, let's say, uh, 35 and up, 
we we still remember Dad's Army and that title sequence with the map of Britain with those arrows pointing at it is so indelibly English. British. Right. So, well... This, this, is, this is the thing, you know, and we're going to run into this all the time. We're talking about signifiers of Englishness as where England really starts and Britishness ends and, and vice versa. But Dad's Army, maybe it's because of the proximity of that reservist army to continental Europe. But that map with those arrows pointing at mm. England is so indelibly written into our consciousness that the Sun newspaper in February 2016 can have a headline, who do you think you are kidding, Mr. Cameron? And we all know what it's referring to. It's quite interesting, isn't it? We all know what it's referring to. And I suppose it is, as you say, both positive and negative, isn't it? That, uh, uh, you know, there is quite rightly genuine pride at being in a situation and refusing refusing to bend and refusing to give up. Um, and you know that's fantastic mm. and there is nonetheless also that negative thing of well look we're going to be okay we don't need you lot type of attitude uh, which is uh, you know in my view something of a shame absolutely you know you take the words out of my mouth there we can take great pride in being steadfast and holding to principles against overwhelming odds and kind of one of the subtexts of the Dunkirk spirit is that it was the common man that helped the nation. Those thousand boats are really important. Yes, Churchill said to the the head of the Navy, work this Mm. out, go do it. But it was those little boats, you know, in the popular imagination. Yeah. So it's it's it really is Mm. it's the everyman's story. You know, this isn't, you know, the the elite of the army or the navy going over there and doing this. This is this is you and me. It's 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 us together. And that can only be but a positive thing. And also it's very Anglo Saxon, isn't it? If you look at kind of American ideas of individualism and rejecting authority, it's extremely Anglo Saxon its root that it was the little man in, in the little boat that kind of helped to do that. You know, I wouldn't have painted it as Anglo Saxon. I'd have pointed it as, as individualistic. I wouldn't have given that a an Anglo Saxon or a non Anglo Saxon bent, actually. Because uh, you could also paint it as community, couldn't you? You know, we as a community, we're going to do all this together. I don't know. I've never thought of it in the way you're describing anyway, actually. Maybe I'm describing it thus because I'm sat in America. And just last week, uh, Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General of the United mm. States, talked about the Anglo-Saxon roots of American jurisprudence. Right. And he was talking about... Uh, and I forget exactly what he was talking about, but it created some controversy over mm. here. But many people were pointing out that the word sheriff, which feels very American is Shire Reeve. Yes, indeed. You know, which comes from this Anglo-Saxon English, uh, Old English terms. And the, the point is that how Americans define themselves and their version of freedom is very much the individual, which yes. they take from those original colonists kind of coming over. So an American would understand emotionally Dunkirk in in the thousand little boats as in effect those um, it's almost like the Minutemen 
in the in the American War of Independence. It's you, the citizen, who is helping the wider communal good, but you as an individual unit, as a sentinel of kind of freedom almost. And and they and Americans assign that very much to the Anglo-Saxon roots. And it's and maybe I'm slightly overplaying it a little to make my point about the importance of Dunkirk and then also Little Englanders, which I think kind of come out of it. But I think an American would see that link. Yeah, and it's, um, I seem to remember an article actually not long ago where the about the the attitude the French have towards uh, the Anglo-Saxon Saxon view of the world and Anglo-Saxon economics and politics, equating it rather upsettingly actually with you know very capitalist, very liberal with a small L um, market economics type approach to the world, and that being an Anglo-Saxon phenomenon mm. lumping together you know the English and uh, and the Americans and probably rather excluding insofar as they're conscious of it uh, you know the Scots and, and the Welsh from that. It's quite interesting that obviously Anglo, the Anglo-Saxon world gets sort of lumped together as this sort of general term with ideas which, as you say, are all about individualism, uh, you know, that market economics thing, of that capitalism thing of people being out for themselves. So I kind of see the point. I, don't, I still don't think I'd necessarily see Dunkirk as being an expression of that. I still, I think I see all those little boats, I would see as much an expression of togetherness uh, about the whole nation tackling this, this thing together. And I think that's one of the things that people, why we get all these blessed World War II movies at the moment, which drives me at the wall a bit, is because it is that feeling of when we were all together with a simple world where it might have been bloody awful, but um, at least, you know, we understood what we were, what we were about and we were together in it. I'd see it as much about a community thing as about an individual thing i'm not going to concede that point to you but i'm going to let you (laughs) have it for the sake of argument because i don't think that's the most important thing in this and for me Mm. i go back to what i've said a couple of times beforehand if you look at the start of the british empire So say that is, you know, the start of the East India Company, just whenever. So 16-something or another, for the sake of argument. The way that we portrayed ourselves as Brits or English is big and powerful. Yeah. And that really gets ramped up in the 19th century. John Bull this, and he's always patting a lion on the head and whatever, and it's Cecil Rhodes, the Colossus over Africa. It's all of that yes. stuff. 1914, we go into that war and we're still the big cheese. We've got an empire behind us. Now, how do we view ourselves internationally? And how is that then played out in the press? Because I think the press is the important thing here, that we, that we spin this, re- this retreat, this defeat into a seeming victory. How do we see ourselves in the 1920s and 30s? And, and I would say it's confused, but I think it's highly significant that we go from being a big empire in our popular consciousness to 1940, we are small and plucky. We never described ourselves as small and plucky beforehand. We never have. I do accept the point, and I think it's a really interesting one. The only thing I'd argue with is so it's it in, can't then. just be... Uh, you... <laughs> I absolutely agree with the point. I think you're right. It's an expression of that 
sudden lack of confidence or disappearance disappearance for that confidence i imagine it must that must have been happening through the 20s and 30s in the af- aftermath of the first world war and all the economic problems that came about after the uh well the immediate aftermath and then in the crash but it as you say yes i agree it's uh it's an expression of that and i think there are lots well, of I, reasons I, why I, dunkirk should go in the cabinet anyway aren't there However repetitious it might, however often we might bring it up and it probably annoys, in fact, I'm sure it annoys the rest of the world. It is still an an extraordinary event in in our history. And I think it's, as you say, it's a good expression of that fact that suddenly we are now alone rather than a world beating empire as it were. Mm. I just think we have to be slightly be careful, though. And I could be making a real esoteric point here um, that if we're going to say that we as a nation rescued 340,000 allied troops and that in itself is miraculous and then it stiffened the sinews of our prime minister at the time Winston Churchill to deliver one of the defining speeches of British history I would say yes but that's British history yeah but in terms of what it does for the key constituent part of Britain and how it sees itself and how it inverts from being big to small, I think that's very much an English story. Right. Okay. I'm not sure you need to make the distinction, though, that, you know, what we're talking about here, we're talking about a thing about what makes England. Uh, Dunkirk might well have meant the same to, I don't know, the Scots and the Welsh as it does the English, but it still meant... Uh, what it meant to the English, you know, it may have meant the same thing. But I don't think we need to worry about whether we're calling it Britain or England. But what you're saying, I think, is uh, it was only the English who then felt like a, a small, less powerful nation in 1940. You're saying that Scots and the Welsh reacted differently? Well, I know what I'm saying is, is that the cultural resonance of it is that we have this expression, mm. a little Englander, and though it does predate Dunkirk, that it, it fleshes it out. Dunkirk fleshes it out and you go, I get it. That mm. all makes sense now. A, a little Englander. In terms of relative size of economic weight and population, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, forward slash Northern Ireland always were little. So there's no such thing as a little Welsher or a little Scot. Or a, it, there, is, there isn't. England... At whatever point you want to look at the the growth of the United Kingdom in terms of population, England is always much, much, much bigger in terms of population. I'm going to argue that, though. We're talking about an attitude of mind, aren't we? Um, That I thought what what your point was, that there's an attitude of mind that England turns from from feeling powerful to feeling uh, beleaguered. Um, And that... And you're saying that isn't the same for the British, the Scots and the Welsh because they always were. Well, I don't think that's true because I think in the 19th century in particular, you know, many Scotland, as I understand it, really buys into the concept of Britain and really concept buys into the concept of empire in particular. Um, obviously very patriotic about Scotland, but there's none of that mm. feeling that, begins to emerge or seems to me to have begun to emerge, you know, with the independence votes and so on, that you kind of can't be a patriotic Scot unless you're against the idea of uh, of Britain. You know, you have to want independence to be a patriotic Scot. That's a very big change, I think, from the 19th century. And what I'd have said, um, Scotland was very much in the same place as, uh, as the English. 
So I decided it's, it's, it's a complicated John Coe would affect the Scottish mentality in the same way as the English, I'd have thought. But I'm trying to play forward. And the elephant in the room here, though you did mention yes. it a couple of times earlier on, is then to talk about Brexit. And it's hard, hard, hard not to look at where England is now and how it sees itself culturally without saying that Dunkirk and the myth of Dunkirk plays into this view of Englishness kind of going forward. I might invert it, Royfield, and say that actually isn't it the other way around completely that isn't the problem that there is an element of, uh, of the English that still buys into that idea of empire and hasn't accepted the fact that actually we're a small damp island off the northwest coast of Europe. Um, and we have a part to play, but it's... There is a certain amount of truth of that. But something which has kind of just come to me is Dunkirk and those ships then sailing back. What's the first thing they see? The White Cliffs of Dover. Now, if you want to have a debate about European immigration and how destructive it is, invariably, you know, you put a bit of Purcell images of the White Cliffs of Dover and you've made that analogy, Mm. you know, that this is a powerful barrier and it's an English barrier. The Scots are much more chilled out and relaxed about European migration. This is a peculiarly English thing, and it's as much to do with the channel, but those bloody white cliffs of Dover, you know, it's immigrants coming into Dover. It, it, it's those arrows pointing at plucky little England, a thin ribbon of blue dividing us from the Nazi hordes and a thousand little plucky ships which kept England safe. Yeah, I kind of don't deny that. Um I'm not right, sure that it's in. the root of. It's in. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm really not sure that. I, I mean, for no, me, it's no, about but... people harking. Although I have to say, one of the other things, since we are now talking about Brexit, and it's my fault, I appreciate it. One of the things I object about the whole debate is that how Remainer, though I, though I very passionately am, I kind of object for the fact that somehow Brexiters inevitably kind of get tarred with a xenophobic brush doesn't necessarily be that way. There are perfectly good reasons to why you might argue for for leaving. Doesn't have to be that they're harking but are all harking back to a golden age. You know, I think there's a casual assumption there which just um isn't fair. No, I I, th- I think you're right. And I think possibly in, in another one of our episodes I mentioned that my mother, Jamaican immigrant, yes. that she has been in the country for six that, yeah. years. Voted yeah. for Brexit. So, so, yeah, not all, you're completely right. They're not all xenophobic racists by any stretch of the imagination. But there are notions of what it is to be English, which for some people are genuinely held, and then for some people do then spill over into notions of racial identity and purity. But that's a whole nother podcast. My point is, is that England used to view itself as big and powerful. By the end of the 20th century, it does not. What is the one point which you can clearly see that the British press and the British people seem to have obviously flicked the switch? Things were changing. I take your point completely in the 1920s, in the 1930s. And part of our, let's say, 
scramble for identity in the early 1930s is a small but significant part of the political establishment does look at fascism. You've got Oswald Mosley. So we're not as confident anymore. I take that point. But if you want to say, at what point is it obvious that something has changed? It's our reaction to Dunkirk. Okay, I'm um, I'm going to agree with you. I think there's probably more than that reason also for putting Dunkirk in, which is genuinely... Again, much as it gets repeated so much time that so many times people, everyone's, everybody who's not English wants to kill us, that it's a fantastic event in our history. Before I go and before I start, before I finally concede the point and allow you to wrap up, I would like to tell you that there was a poll recently that said that Scottish attitudes towards immigration are very similar indeed to English. Um, going back to that point about there being that big difference between the way England and Scotland and Wales reacts to uh, the loss of empire. I don't, I don't know that it's little Englander is a particularly, is a purely English attitude. You know, David, in one of my other podcasts, Mid-Atlantic, I spoke to a left-wing Brexiteer. Yeah. You know, he would describe well, himself Corbyn, as hard left and, he was pro- and he's pro-Brexit. And just to keep the Jeremy Corbyn analogy going, he's never changed his viewpoint on the European Union from the 1970s and 80s. This is, uh, you know, the the cabal of corporations and the rich. That's the way he, he views it. And he had to remind me that he says, yes, London voted to remain. And in the popular mind's eye, everybody in London's drinking lattes and, you know, had skis in Val d'Isere and has got a, you know, an au pair from wherever and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's incredibly multicultural. But he says it was only 60-40. There's still 40% of Londoners mm. that, that voted to leave. Yeah. But you would think um, in the popular press that it was like 90-10. Mm. And then he says in Scotland, which, yes, voted to remain, it was 60-40. So there's still 40% of Scots. So I, I take your point completely. We have these overwhelmingly simple caricatures and narratives for quite complex things, which, again, is the reason why I come back and say that's the reason why I put in Dunkirk in, because the expression Little Englander was already out there, it had been for like 100 years. But it makes complete and utter sense with late 20th century and early 21st century British slash English mm. politics yeah. in terms of just using that as an easy signifier as a change. So it's like, you know, does the Roman Empire really end in 476 yeah. or was it really decaying from 410 when the, the Roman troops left, left Britain? And it's just one of those arguments. But you have to have a date. You have to have a point. You say, yeah. It's definitely something that's happened now. We we be ourselves differently from this point. Sure. I I'm happy to agree with you. Yay. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> right. So listener, uh do you agree or disagree? What you can do is go onto our Facebook group and um and, and tell us your thoughts and feelings on it. Greetings all. This is Fiona with the social media roundup. The subject up for discussion has been English accents. Should they go into the cabinet? The poll thus far has 38 yes, 11 no, and three people sitting on the fence. Within the discussion, we got a huge range of impassioned responses. Steve said, English accents are quaint, but I don't think they're really critical to what made England. 
A person a few miles up the road in England might sound a bit different, but in places like Spain, Italy, or many other countries, the person a few miles up the road very likely speaks a different dialect, which could be incomprehensible. Catherine said that she thought that 30 to 40 years ago, different accents also had different vocabularies, and cited her Merseyside versus her Liverpudlian cousins. Steeple countered with, This episode reminds me of the old you can't see the forest for the trees. To me, what makes England is language. The variance in accents and pronunciation mean little. Andy said that he was on the fence, because while it's a very English thing, he wasn't sure that accents made England, and that they were no more than a curiosity. Joe, who admits to being a Yinza, and for you Brits out there, that's a native of or near Pittsburgh, said, English accents in the cabinet? Rubbish. I suppose it's true that people talk differently in England, but that's true everywhere. Americans have some fantastic accents, both urban and rural, so accents don't make England special at all. It was a vibrant discussion, with knickers getting very twisted, and it's worth a look at all of the comments on the Facebook page. When asked about their particular accents, we heard some great stories. Richard spoke about encountering an elderly woman with an accent so posh it was indecipherable. It was like listening to a Siamese cat yowling. Yikes. Callum admitted to having a really annoying habit of picking up accent features from others. He said, quote, I suspect it's something I'm subconsciously doing, mimicking an accent to better connect with people, but it's only a matter of time before somebody swings for me, thinking I'm taking the mick. Ironically, some folk got persnickety over pronunciation, but as we say in my corner of England, correct pronunciation is a matter of dialect, my lover. David created a second poll asking folk to vote on their favourite accents. So far, East Anglian has gained the most votes. I'm suspicious. I think it's the Norfolk Defence of the Saxon Tongue League infiltrating the page and voting. You can still leap onto that poll and vote for your favourite accent. Finally, Royfield posted a map on dialects, which is interesting and worth a gawp at. In a fortnight, the topic will be the flag of St George. And I already feel I know where that topic will lead us twisted knickers everywhere. So until we meet again, iron out your drawers, lend your voices to the discussion, and don't tell I tell E, as we say in Somerset. Go and join our shiny new Facebook site where once a month we will post a poll where, should you so desire, you can make your own very suggestions for applications to the I Made England Award. It was the best of time. It was the worst of time. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body but of a weak and feeble woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.